Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Folklore.org, June 1982. Inside Macintosh, by Andy Hertzfeld. One of the primary differences between the Lisa and Macintosh projects was the way they viewed third-party developers. The Lisa team was writing an integrated suite of seven office-oriented applications, so they didn't see a need to support third-party developers, at least initially. Inspired by the Apple II, the Macintosh took a different approach. The Apple II's sales increased more than tenfold when a tiny company named Software Arts released VisiCalc, the first spreadsheet, which initially ran only on the Apple II. The Tandy Radio Shack and Commodore folks would like to remind us that VisiCalc was, by contract, exclusive to the Apple II for its first 12 months on the market. I wonder what the world would look like today if that hadn't been the case. We wanted all the people who resonated with the Macintosh dream to extend it with their own creativity. Having first-class support for developers was considered a must from the very beginning. But that was easier said than done. Lisa's stance was reasonable because consistency between applications was important. There were virtually no third-party developers familiar with graphical user interfaces, so we had to educate them about this new approach to programming. In those days, every application had a different user interface. We weren't even sure it was possible to coordinate independent developers to conform to our ideas about user interface consistency. And in early 1982, our user interface was still evolving. Even internally, we didn't necessarily agree about the best way to do things. Many situations hadn't even been considered yet. The next logical steps were to formally document and codify our user interface, identify and resolve open issues, and then communicate with third-party developers. One forcing function was a looming meeting with one of our first developers, Microsoft. They were scheduled to pick up their developer documentation and Mac prototypes around the end of January. We held a series of intense all-day meetings in January of 82 to thrash out disagreements and formulate a shared view of the user interface, metaphorically locking ourselves in a room until we came to consensus. Steve Jobs, Bill Atkinson, Joanna Hoffman, Chris Espinoza, Randy Wigginton and I were all present. The Lisa user interface was our obvious starting point, but we had a drive to simplify, to strip out anything that seemed too complex. Triple clicking was easy to get rid of, but it was difficult to agree on the details of scroll bars. After two and a half days, we were more or less in agreement. Joanna wrote the first draft of the Macintosh user interface guidelines in time for the Microsoft meeting the following week. By April, the first implementation of the user interface toolbox was ready for release. Since most developers had never written programs for graphical user interfaces, it was important to write high-quality documentation to explain the ins and outs. Chris Espinoza had already written some excellent documentation for using QuickDraw, so we were off to a good start. I met with Chris, and we decided to tackle the window manager next. He assigned a recently hired technical writer who will remain mercifully nameless, in their mid-twenties to document the Window Manager API. I sat down with the writer one afternoon and, source code in hand, went over the Window Manager API in fine detail. 
I was a little worried because I did most of the talking and they didn't ask any questions, but promised to show me a first draft in just a few days. A few days later, Chris handed me a few pages of window manager documentation with the caveat that this was a very early draft and that I shouldn't expect too much. My heart sank as I began to read it. The actual window manager calls were correct, as were the comments from the header file, but the descriptions of each call made no sense. It was clear the writer simply didn't understand many of the underlying quickdraw and memory manager concepts, and instead of asking for an explanation, just made up whatever popped into their head. I had a panicky meeting with Chris, but he was able to calm me down and convince me to give the writer another chance. I met with both of them, explaining the problems that I had with the documentation so far. The writer was amazingly blithe and cheerful about it, saying they knew they didn't understand everything, but figured that I would correct anything that was wrong. We had another longer meeting, where I did my best to explain the underlying concepts again, like handles and regions, and went over the window manager API again, this time asking if there were any questions at the end of each routine. It still seemed to me like the writer was having trouble understanding things, no matter how carefully I tried to explain them, but they didn't seem concerned at all. The next draft was just as bad as the previous one, and I felt even worse given all the effort I had sunk into it. Chris was defensive, and I began to despair of ever getting decent documentation. So I was surprised when Chris entered my cubicle a couple of days later with a smile on his face. We've just made an offer to a new writer, he said, someone who I think will do a much better job on the technical side of things. She used to be a programmer. Her name is Caroline Rose. I'm going to assign her to the window manager documentation. See what you think. The next week, I sat down for my first meeting with Caroline and she couldn't have been more different than the previous writer. As soon as I began to explain the first routine, she started bombarding me with questions. She didn't mind admitting when she didn't understand something, and she wouldn't stop badgering me until she comprehended every nuance. She began to ask questions that I didn't know the answers to, like what happened when certain parameters in a function call were invalid. I had to keep the source code open on my Lisa when I met with her, so I could figure out the answers to her questions on the fly. Pretty soon, I figured out that if Caroline had trouble understanding something, it probably meant the design was flawed. On a number of occasions, I told her to come back tomorrow after she asked a particularly penetrating question and revised the API to fix the fundamental design flaws that she had pointed out. When I was coding something new, I began to imagine her questions before we met which made me work harder to clarify everything before it was time to write documentation. Initially, we distributed the raw documentation to developers piecemeal as each chunk was written, but we eventually wanted to compile a single reference called Inside Macintosh. It was almost a thousand pages long, spread across three volumes, mostly written by Caroline, with help from Bob Anders, Brad Hacker, Steve Chernikoff, and a few others. Steve Jobs insisted on very high production standards for the first edition, naturally, using only the finest binding and paper available. But high-quality printing takes time, and the evangelists were impatient to get the documentation out to developers as soon as possible. 
I'm not sure whose idea it was, but a compromise was struck. Apple would publish a free, soft-bound, promotional edition of Inside Macintosh on low-quality paper as soon as possible and send a copy for free to every developer. It was about as thick and flimsy as the yellow pages, so it became known as the Phonebook edition. Most developers still bought the high-quality, beautiful hardback edition when it came out a few months later anyhow. We weren't even sure it was possible to coordinate independent developers to conform to our ideas about user interface consistency. Original Macintosh team member Joanna Hoffman speaking to the Computer History Museum. What you don't want is cut, copy, paste to appear in 20 different places. And uh, once you have a graphical user interface, people really work by spatial orientation. And you don't want to switch things around willy-nilly. But now, it's exactly the opposite. It's exa exactly the opposite. Every time I go to use a piece of software, I have no idea what it's going to look like. Because some 18-year-old at Google had decided that this is how he's going to change it or she's going to change it with no forewarning, no reason, no nothing. Everyone complains about that. But you know what? Because it's free, people are putting up with the shit. And so, but the Macintosh wasn't free. <laughs> and uh, neither were its successors. We were more in the Apple II tradition in a sense that we were going to rely on third-party developers, right? Then as we got more steam, we were seeing that people's mentality was still in the days of the Apple II or the IBM PC. We're going to do what's right for our software and everything else be damned. But the whole premise of the Macintosh was that there was going to be consistency, that going from application to application, you didn't have to relearn things. One day I just sat down and I thought, we need to give these people some guidelines and also tell them what's already built into the machine, into the ROM, because we were trying to encourage them to do this. So a Walkman, a pair of <laughs> earphones, and Mozart. I sat there day and night and cranked it out. I'm not a, that fast a typist, but it, I became one writing that. And we were very fortunate in getting Caroline Rose. She was fantastic, so she really deserves the credit. Uh -huh.